Marriage is the rock foundation, the cornerstone of civilization. No nation will ever rise above its homes. Marriage and family life are ordained of God. In an eternal sense, salvation is a family affair. God holds parents responsible for their stewardship in rearing their family. It is a most sacred responsibility. Today we are aware of great problems in our society. The most obvious are sexual promiscuity, homosexuality, drug abuse, alcoholism, vandalism, pornography, and violence. These grave problems are symptoms of failure in the home. The disregarding of principles and practices established by God in the very beginning. Because parents have departed from the principles the Lord gave for happiness and success, families throughout the world are undergoing great stress and trauma. Many parents have been enticed to abandon their responsibilities in the home to seek after the elusive self-fulfillment. Some have abdicated parental responsibility for pursuit of material things, unwilling to postpone personal gratification in the interest of their children's welfare. It is the time to awaken to the fact that these are deliberate efforts to restructure the family along the lines of humanistic values. Images of the family and of love, as depicted in television and film, often portray a philosophy contrary to the commandments of God. If one doubts that the family as an institution is being restructured, consider these facts. Nearly one out of every three marriages end in divorce. The traditional family, one which has a husband, a wife, not working outside the home, the children, constitutes only 14% of American households. Nearly 50% of the workforce force is now female. About 56% of these female workers are mothers with preschool children, and nearly 60% of them have teenagers at home. In the United States alone, it is estimated that 8 to 10 million youngsters, six and under, are in a child care situation outside the home. Almost one-fifth of all children in the United States live in a one-parent home. No, no society will long survive without mothers who care for their young 
and provide that nurturing care so essential for their normal development. Innocent-sounding phrases are now used to give approval to sinful practices. Thus, the term alternative lifestyle is used to justify adultery and homosexuality, freedom of choice to justify abortion, meaningful relationships, and self-fulfillment to justify sex outside of marriage. If we continue with present trends, we can expect to have more emotionally disturbed young people, more divorce, more depression, and more suicide. The family is the most effective place to instill lasting values in its members. Where family life is strong and based on principle and practices of the gospel of Jesus Christ, these problems do not as readily appear. My message this morning is to return to the God-ordained fundamentals that will ensure love, stability, and happiness in our homes. May I offer three fundamentals to happy, enduring family relationships. First, a husband and wife must attain righteous unity and oneness in their goals, desires, and actions. Marriage itself must be regarded as a sacred sacrament and covenant before God. A married couple has an obligation not only to each other, but to God. He has promised blessings to those who honor that covenant. Fidelity to one's marriage vows is absolutely essential for love, trust, and peace. Adultery is unequivocally condemned by the Lord. Husbands and wives who love each other will find that love and loyalty are reciprocated. This love will provide a nurturing atmosphere for the emotional growth of children. Family life should be a time of happiness and joy where children can look back on fond memories and associations. Here are these simple admonitions from the Lord, which may be applied to the marriage covenant. First, see that ye love one another. Cease to be covetous. Learn to impart one to another as the gospel promises. Cease to be unclean. Cease to find fault one with another. Second, thou shalt love thy wife with all thy heart, and shalt cleave unto her and none else. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Third, he that hath the spirit of contention is not of me, but is of the devil, who is the father of contention. And there are many more scriptural admonitions. Restraint and self-control must be ruling principles in the marriage relationship. Couples 
must learn to bridle their tongues as well as their passions. Prayer in the home and prayer with each other will strengthen your union. Gradually, thoughts, aspirations, and ideas will merge into a oneness until you are seeking the same purposes and goals. Rely on the Lord, the teachings of the prophets, and the scriptures for guidance and help, particularly when there may be disagreements and problems. Spiritual growth comes by solving problems together, not running from them. Today's immediate emphasis on individualism brings egotism and separation. Two individuals becoming one flesh is still the Lord's standard. The secret of a happy marriage is to serve God and each other. The goal of marriage is unity and oneness, as well as self-development. Paradoxically, the more we serve one another, the greater is our spiritual and emotional growth. The first fundamental, then, is to work toward righteous unity. Second, nurture your children with love and the admonition of the Lord. Rearing happy, peaceful children is no easy challenge in today's world, but it can be done and it is being done. Responsible parenthood is the key. Above all else, children need to know and feel they are loved, wanted, and appreciated. They need to be assured of that often. Obviously, this is a role parents should fill, and most often the mother can do it best. Children need to know who they are in the eternal sense of their eternity, of their identity. They need to know that they have an eternal Heavenly Father on whom they can rely, to whom they can pray, and from whom they can receive guidance. They need to know from whence they came so that their life will have meaning and purpose. Children must be taught to pray, to rely on the Lord for guidance, and to express appreciation for the blessings that are theirs. I recall kneeling at the bedside of our young children helping them with their prayers. Children must be taught right from wrong. They can and must learn the commandments of God. They must be taught that it is wrong to steal, lie, cheat, or covet covet what others have. Children must be taught how to work at home. They should learn there that honest labor develops dignity and self-respect. They should learn the pleasure of work, of doing a job well. The leisure time of children must be constructively directed to wholesome, positive results. 
Too much time view, viewing television can be destructive, and pornography in this media should not be tolerated. It is estimated that growing children today watch television over 25 hours per week. Communities have a responsibility to assist the family in promoting wholesome entertainment. What a community tolerates will become tomorrow's standard for today's youth. Families must spend more time together in work and recreation. Family home evenings should be scheduled once a week as a time for recreation work projects, skits, songs around the piano, games, special refreshment, and family prayers. Like iron links in a chain, this practice will bind a family together in love of pride, tradition, strength, and loyalty. Family study of the scriptures should be the practice in our homes each Sabbath day. Daily devotionals are also a commendable practice where scripture reading, singing of hymns, and family prayer are part of our daily routine. Third, parents must prepare their children for the ordinances of the gospel. The most important teachings in the home are spiritual. Parents are commanded to prepare their sons and daughters for the ordinances of the gospel. Baptism, confirmation, priesthood ordinations, and temple marriage. They are to teach them to respect and honor the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. Most importantly, parents are to instill within their children a desire for eternal life and to earnestly seek for that goal above all else. Eternal life may only be obtained by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. When parents themselves have complied with the ordinances of salvation, when they have set an example of a temple marriage, not only is their own marriage more likely to succeed, their children are far more, far more likely to follow their example. Parents who provide such a home will have, as the Lord has said, a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of order, a house of God. Regardless of how modest or humble that home may be, it will have love, happiness, peace, and joy. Children will grow up in righteousness and truth and will desire to serve the Lord. One past church president gave this counsel to parents. The home is what needs reforming. Try today and tomorrow to make a change in your home by praying twice a day with your family. 
Ask a blessing upon every meal you eat. Spend ten minutes reading a scripture from the words of the Lord in the scriptures. Let love, peace, and the spirit of the Lord, kindness, charity, sacrifice for others abound in your families. Banish harsh words and let the spirit of God take possession of your hearts. Teach your children these things in spirit and power. No, not one child in a hundred would go astray if the home environment, example, and training were in harmony with the gospel of Christ. I testify that by following these precepts and practices, serious problems with the family can and will be avoided. Thank God for the joys of family life. I have often said there can be no genuine happiness separate and apart from a good home. The sweetest influences and associations of life are there. God bless us to strengthen our homes with love and unity and by following his precepts I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We are Christians. We know additional details about the Savior's role in the preexistence before we came here. We have new information about his part in the creation of the world under the direction of our Father. We can identify him as Jehovah of the Old Testament, communicating with the prophets of Israel. We have the Book of Mormon, another testament of Jesus Christ, which has great illuminating doctrines and information about the Savior. Our modern prophets have given revealed explanations, doctrines, light, and knowledge on the Christ as the Redeemer to whom we look for the remission of our sins. We have a wealth of information of tremendous value to all Christian churches. We do not diminish or tear down the faith of other Christians, but seek only to share with them our additional knowledge of the Lamb, the Shepherd, the Holy One of Israel, for their benefit and salvation. Like Nephi of old, we believe in Christ. We look forward with steadfastness unto Christ. We are made alive in Christ because of our faith. We talk of Christ, we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we look forward unto that life which is in Christ. Can anyone doubt that we are Christians in the full sense of the word? Some time ago I was on an airplane over the Colombian jungle of South America. I had been telling my seat companion about the church. At one point in my enthusiastic gospel conversation my friend commented, you Mormons have surely built a magnificent shrine at Joseph Smith's gravesite. In surprise, I claimed, What shrine? What gravesite? He replied, Why, that tall building in Salt Lake City with the gold angel on top. <laughs> Isn't that a, a mausoleum or a shrine of some kind where you worship your prophet? He was referring, of course, to the great Salt Lake Temple. In dismay, I recognized his misunderstanding, no telling where it came from. I proceeded to correct the error to the best of my ability. I said to my friend, Please allow me to explain that we definitely are Christians. We do worship God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ. 
And we do not worship any prophet or any saint, modern or of ancient times. We do not worship the prophet Joseph Smith, although we love and honor him, but we never pray to him. In our doctrine, philosophy, and practice, he is not an intermediary of any kind, nor is any other prophet or saint. Christ alone is the advocate with the Father. And I repeated for emphasis, not Mary, not Joseph, not Peter, James, or John, nor any of the ancient prophets like Adam, Moses, or Abraham, not any modern prophet like Joseph Smith or Brigham Young is worshipped or prayed to. I went on further to explain that the temple in Salt Lake City is not to honor the prophet Joseph, nor is he even buried there. To make my point that we do not worship our prophets, I said, Please believe me when I say that we never make a a pilgrimage to where the prophet Joseph is buried. As a matter of fact, I do not even know where he is buried. This explanation of my not knowing where Joseph Smith is buried seemed to be the most dramatic kind of clarification my friend could have received. He was thoroughly astonished, but he could easily see that his understanding of our church had been completely wrong. This turnabout then led to a conversation in which truths regarding how we do worship the Savior could be discussed easily and openly. The positive fact that we are practicing Christians was established. I believe it to be the responsibility of every member of the church to so live and teach and preach that there will never be any doubt on the part of our friends, associates, and casual acquaintances as to our being Christians, having the desire to receive redemption through Him, to be the kind of person that is a friend of the Savior, a servant of the Savior, and a son of the Savior. Let me discuss each one of these three roles. First, a friend of the Savior. President Kimball qualifies as a friend of the Savior. When he was in the hospital ready to undergo open-heart surgery a few years ago, he was being wheeled down the hall and into the operating room. The young orderly accidentally smashed his finger between the metal door frame and the metal frame of the bed on which lay the already sedated prophet. When this mishap occurred, the young man, in pain, used an unfortunate expression in which he took in vain the name of the Savior. The prophet stirred, opened his eyes, and gently rebuked the orderly, saying, Young man, don't say that. He's my best friend. Do you and I have a relationship with the Savior such that we would defend the misuse of his name? Does Jesus know that we feel about him the way President Kimball feels about him? Another example of President Kimball's discipleship occurred one Christmas Eve several years ago. President Kimball called and asked if I were busy. I quickly responded, not at all. What can I do for you, President Kimball? He told me he needed a companion to go with him to the primary children's hospital to give a few blessings. It turned out that he had heard of several children from South America as well as some American Indian children who were in the hospital. We went from floor to floor giving blessings to all the Latins and Lamanites and many others too. I was deeply affected by the love of President Kimball and his tender friendship to each child. He was a friend to the sick, a friend to those far from home. He exemplified the tender loving friendship that the Savior would give. It was easy to see how he could say, The Savior is my best friend. Second, 
be a servant of the Savior. King Benjamin made this clear. For how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? How can we possibly be a servant to the Savior if we have not served him, if we are strangers to him, if we keep him far from the daily thoughts and intents of our hearts? President Harold B. Lee was the kind of person who so knew the Savior and had been a servant for such a long period of time that he knew instinctively what the Savior would say or do in any given situation. For example, shortly after becoming the president of the church, President Lee held his first press conference as the new prophet of the church. The reporters posed for President Lee what could have been a difficult question. What is your position with regard to the Vietnam War? You recall at that time the war was underway and there were those who supported it and those who were against our involvement. If President Lee said, I am in favor of our government's position, the reporters could say, how strange, a spiritual leader in favor of war? If he answered, I am against our government's involvement, the reporters could also raise doubts by saying, how unusual, a religious leader who pretends to support his government but does not? When the people of the press presented the question, President Lee responded as a servant of the Savior would, knowing how to use the very words of the Lord in an inspired manner. His answer disarmed them, impressed them. As I remember, he said, We, together with the entire Christian world, abhor war. And he went on, The Savior said, In the world ye will have tribulations. But he also said, In me ye will have peace. Continuing presently quoted from John 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I peace unto you. And then presently taught a great principle, and he said to them, The Savior was not speaking of the kind of peace which is won with armies or navies or force, nor was he speaking of the kind of peace which can be negotiated in the halls of congresses. He was speaking of the kind of peace we each can have in our hearts only when we live his commandments to such a degree that we know he is pleased with us. President Lee, speaking as a true servant of the Prince of Peace, had answered them with inspiration. Third, be a son or daughter of the Savior. Let there be no confusion. Our Heavenly Father is the Father of our spirits. He is also the Father of the Spirit of Jesus. The Holy Trinity is not an oblong blur, but rather three separate and distinct personages. Heavenly Father gave to His Son those of His children who would take upon themselves the name of His Son, demonstrating faith in Him by repenting of our sins and entering the holy waters of baptism and then going forth steadfastly in his kingdom forever. King Benjamin tells us, And now because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. I pray that the entire membership of this church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, will so live that if there be any who would accuse us falsely as not being Christians, 
their words would not be believed by any who know us and that every person who has ever met a member of this church would know that we all strive daily to be better friends of the Savior, more unselfish servants of the Savior, more like sons and daughters given by the Father to our Savior by virtue of our taking His name upon us in the holy waters of baptism. This I testify humbly and with love in the name of Jesus Christ, our Master and Redeemer. Amen. My brothers and sisters, we are living in a time in which we shall see things both wonderful and awful. There is no way that we can be a part of the last days and have it otherwise. Even so, we are instructed by our Lord and exemplar, Jesus Christ, to be of good cheer. Jesus has given that same instruction to others before when the stressful circumstances in which they found themselves were anything but cheerful. For instance, he told the original twelve to be of good cheer when on the surface there was nothing to be cheerful about. The indescribable agonies of Gethsemane were imminent. Judas's betrayal lay immediately ahead. Likewise, Jesus' arrest and arraignment. The twelve would be scattered like sheep. Jesus' unjust and mocking trial and his terrible scourging were but hours away. The shrill and disappointing cry of the mob to release Barabbas instead of Jesus would soon echo in the air. Then would come the final awful moments on Calvary. Therefore, how could Jesus expect the twelve to be of good cheer? Because, the Savior said, In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Because Christ had overcome the world, the atonement was about to be accomplished. Death was about to be irrevocably defeated. Satan would have failed to have stopped the unfolding plan of salvation. All mankind would be given, through the grace of God, immortality. Additionally, for those who would earn it, there would be the richness of eternal life. These were among the resplendent realities and the fundamental facts which justified the Twelve's being of good cheer, not their grim temporary circumstances. The precious perspectives of the gospel give to us this gospel gladness. It was the same on another occasion when, of a night, the resurrected Jesus stood by and imprisoned Paul, instructing Paul to be of good cheer. Once again, the circumstances of the moment included Paul's having been struck publicly on the mouth by order of Ananias. Forty individuals were plotting his death. He faced a trial for sedition. A shipwreck lay in his immediate future. Why, therefore, should he be of good cheer? Because, Jesus announced, though in bad circumstances, Paul would soon take the good news of the gospel to Rome. Church members in another age were being held hostage until certain prophecies were fulfilled, with their lives being forfeit if those prophecies were not fulfilled precisely on time. They, too, were told by the Lord to be of good cheer. Why? Because, said Jesus, on the morrow come I into the world. With his birth, the mortal ministry of the Messiah would at last be launched. Gospel gladness was a part of the Prophet Joseph Smith's attitude. In the fall of 1842, rumors were rife of armed mobs on their way to Nauvoo. His beloved Emma was often ill, and there were concerns she would not recover. 
Joseph was hunted in the city of Joseph. And the day after Christmas, Joseph was wrongly arrested and then freed. He wrote, On my return home, I found my wife Emma sick. She was delivered of a son which did not survive his birth. Though in a period of such anguish and affliction, the persecuted prophet wrote concerning temple work, Now what do we hear in the gospel which we have received? A voice of gladness, a voice of gladness for the living and the dead, glad tidings of great joy. Let your hearts rejoice and be exceeding glad, and let the mountains shout for joy, and all ye valleys cry aloud. What precious perspective we obtain from the gospel of Jesus Christ concerning things that really matter, against which we measure the disappointments of the day. In the late 1820s, Brigham Young, as yet untouched by the restored gospel, was a somewhat discouraged young man. He found himself disapproving of much of what he saw in the world and wondering if he had a work yet to do. His loving brother Phineas gave Brigham prescient counsel. Hang on, Brigham, for I know the Lord is going to do something for us yet. What then happened is Moses-like history. Thus we see, brothers and sisters, how we are justified in being of good cheer for ultimate reasons. Reasons to be distinguished, however, from proximate circumstances. If our attitude, for instance, towards life depends upon the praise of men, the level of interest rates, the outcome of a particular election or athletic contest, we are too much at the mercy of men and circumstance. Nor should our gratitude for the gift of mortal life depend upon the manner in which we die, for surely none of us will rush eagerly forward to tell Jesus how we died. Instead, Jesus calls upon us to have a deliberate trust in God's unfolding purposes, not only for all humankind, but for us individually, and we are to be of good cheer in the unfolding process. We must not underestimate, however, the difficulty of the last days. Joel and Zephaniah both speak of the last days as being a day of gloominess. The coming decades will be times of despair. Why? Because, as Moroni said, despair comes of iniquity. The more despair, the more iniquity. And unless there is a widespread repentance, despair will both deepen and spread, except among those who have gospel gladness. Alas, though we are asked to be peacemakers, we do live in a time when peace has been taken from the earth. War has been the almost continuing experience of modern man. There have been 141 wars, large and small, just since the end of World War II in 1945. As the American Civil War was about to begin, the Lord declared there would be a succession of wars poured out upon all nations, resulting in the death and misery of many souls. Moreover, that continuum of conflict will culminate in a full end to all nations. Meanwhile, let mortals, if they choose, seek to arm themselves with mortal weapons. As for us, we shall put on the whole armor of God. And in the midst of such affliction, if we are righteous and we die, we die unto him. And if we live, we live unto him.
Alas, brothers and sisters, we likewise live in a time when the love of many will wax cold. Fear will therefore increase. Why? Because when men fear, it is because we are not perfect in love. The less love, the more fear, as well as the more war. As with Paul, however, we may be perplexed, but we are not in despair. For if we are prepared spiritually, we need not fear. Even so, the Lord has made no secret of the fact that He intends to try the faith and the patience of His saints. We mortals are so quick to forget the Lord. And thus we see that except the Lord doth chasten His people with many afflictions, they will not remember Him. However, the Lord knows our bearing capacity, both as to coping and to comprehending. And He will not give us more to bear than we can manage at the moment though to us it may seem otherwise. Just as no temptations will come to us from which we cannot escape or which we cannot bear, we will not be given more trials than we can sustain. Therefore, given the aforementioned grand and overarching reasons to rejoice, can we not be of good cheer in spite of stress and circumstance? President Brigham Young said of a geographical destination, This is the place of God's plan of salvation with its developmental destination, it can be said, this is the process. President Young, who knew something about trial and tribulation, but also of man's high destiny, said that the Lord lets us pass through these experiences that we might become true friends of God. By developing our individual capacities, wisely exercising our agency, and trusting God, including when we feel forsaken and alone. Then we can, said President Young, learn to be righteous in the dark. The gospel glow we see radiating from some amid dark difficulties comes from illuminated individuals who are of good cheer. To be cheerful when others are in despair, to keep the faith when others falter, to be true even when we feel forsaken, All of these are deeply desired outcomes during the deliberate divine tutorials which God gives to us because He loves us. These learning experiences must not be misread as divine indifference. Instead, such tutorials are a part of divine unfoldingness. Even as believers, however, when we are a part of encapsulating events, we can scarcely savor all that swirls about us. It is unlikely, for instance, on that night so long ago in Bethlehem that Joseph and Mary looked at the newly born Christ child's feet with the realization that those feet would one day walk the length and breadth of the Holy Land, and further that later on spikes would pierce those feet. As a loving Mary grasped those tiny hands, and as in the months ahead those tiny hands clasped her, Did she know that those hands, when grown, would ordain the original twelve or still later carry the rough-hewn cross? As she heard her baby cry, did she hear intimations of Jesus' later weeping at the death of Lazarus or after blessing the Nephite children? Did she foresee that those baby-soft knees would later be hardened by so much prayer, including those glorious but awful hours in Gethsemane? As she bathed that babe so many times to cleanse his pores, could she have been expected to foresee that one day 
Years later, drops of blood would come from his every pore. There is such a thing as cheerful, believing participation, even without full understanding. When you and I keep certain things in our hearts and are nourished as we ponder them. In the midst of our afflictions, reassurances will come to us from the Lord and from his prophets, as they did to the Lord's people in another age, when they feared an approaching army, and the prophet reminded them, and therefore they hushed their fears. Like a young Eliza Snow in an ox wagon in the midst of tribulation, we can maintain our perspective about things as they really are, and in her words, be thankful that we are so well off. Such reassurances and perspective will surely be needed, brothers and sisters, for the Lord has clearly indicated that his purifying and sifting judgment would begin first at the house of God and then proceed outward to the world. Just what this sifting will consist of is not now clear. What special pressures combined with the ongoing and demanding rigors of taking up the cross daily, we know not. We do know that the tempter's triad of tools, identified by Jesus as temptation, persecution, and tribulation, will be relentlessly used. And if the heat from the sun of such circumstances will scorch even a green tree, this heat will be very real. Much sifting, therefore, will occur because of lapses in righteous behavior, which go unrepented of. A few will give up instead of holding out to the end. A few will be deceived by defectors. Likewise, others will be offended. For sufficient unto each dispensation are the stumbling blocks thereof. A few will stumble because, in their preoccupation with the cares of the world, they do not have oil in their lamps. And again and again, those who refuse to eat their spiritual spinach will come off second when they wrestle with the world. Some, because of the scorn of the world, will grow ashamed and let go of the iron rod. A few who have not been saints but merely tourists passing through will depart from the path. A few, failing to be of good cheer, will even charge God foolishly. Surely, brothers and sisters, already too many Church members have broken hearts and broken homes because of broken covenants and broken promises. Society's increasing slide towards pleasure-seeking brings our so-called civilization comparatively much closer to Sodom than to Eden. In our striving to be prepared, therefore, let us be careful to rely on parents, priesthood, and principles, and on scriptures and temples and leaders who lead to see us through. Let us not mistake program scaffolding for substance. If we are of good cheer, we will find no use for nostalgia for another time, even though a wistful lamentation such as this one is understandable. Oh, that I could have had my days in the days when my father Nephi first came out of the land of Jerusalem. Then were his people easy to be entreated, firm to keep the commandments of God, and slow to be led to do iniquity. But behold, I am consigned that these are my days. Brothers and sisters, these are our days. This is our time on earth. These are our tasks to be done. And in these days, being of good cheer 
is part of being valiant in the testimony of Jesus. Finally, in those moments when we feel the pain, which is a necessary part of the plan of happiness, we can remember that there was an ancient time when that plan was first unveiled. Then the perceptive among us voted, not secretly, but audibly, by shouting for joy. Let us not go back on those feelings now, for we saw more clearly then what we are experiencing now. May God help us to be of good cheer, for this is the forerunner feeling which precedes that glorious condition when our joy will be full. Meanwhile, he who knows the path perfectly has promised, Be of good cheer, for I will lead you along. The kingdom is yours and the riches of eternity. In the name of him who waits with open arms to receive us, Jesus Christ, amen. A few weeks ago, as I approached these temple grounds where I was to meet a friend, a young woman, a stranger to me, stepped up and said, Would you like to know what kind of people these Mormons really are? <laughs> I responded with, I think I already know a little bit about what they really are. To this, the heckler retorted, They surely don't live the teachings of Jesus Christ as they should. My concluding comment was, who does? As I continued my walk to the visitor center, I began to ponder about the actions of those persons who are giving time and money to discredit, embarrass, ridicule, and shame those who have religious views that differ from their own. Sometimes such actions can unify and strengthen those who are attacked, However, in some few instances, they plant seeds of discord, and at times righteous people are hurt by their slander. I doubt that such actions can be called Christ-like. At no time did Jesus Christ encourage us to spend time participating in damaging, destructive criticism. His message was to encourage us to seek learn and share all that is praiseworthy and of value as we associate with our fellow men. Only those who are vindictive and cantankerous participate in ferreting out and advertising the negative and unsavory. I will be forever grateful for the wise counsel my mission president gave me as I arrived in England to serve as a missionary, he said. Elder Ashton, these people in this land have been at it a long time. If you will keep your eyes, ears, and mind open, you can learn much while you're here. Look for the good and overlook that which is different from your ways. The longer I stayed in England, the more I appreciated this advice. Day by day, I grew to love and appreciate that great country and its people for their example for example, instead of freezing in the raw winter weather, I did as the English did. I put on another sweater rather than wasting my time murmuring or complaining. Robert Wise wrote, Nothing is easier than fault-finding. No talent, no self-denial, no brains are required to set up in the grumbling business. Close quote. 
whether accusation innuendos, aspersions, or falsehood are whispered or blandly shouted, the gospel of Jesus Christ reminds us that we are not to retaliate nor contend. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. No religion, group, nor individual can prosper over an extended period of time with fault-finding as their foundation. To the world, and especially to members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we declare there is no time for contention. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. The poet Robert Frost once defined education as the ability to listen to almost anything without losing your temper or your self-confidence. Probably we will never be free of those who are openly anti-Mormon. Therefore, we encourage all our members to refuse to become anti-anti-Mormon. In the words of old, can we live and let live? Certainly one of our God-given privileges is the right to choose what our attitude will be in any given set of circumstances. We can let the events that surround us determine our actions, or we can personally take charge and rule our lives using as guidelines the principles of pure religion. Pure religion is learning the gospel of Jesus Christ and putting it into action. Nothing will ever be of real benefit to us until it is incorporated into our lives. It seems to me there has never been a period in history when it is more important for us to be engaged in pure religion as taught by the Savior. This religion is not to retaliate or to exchange in kind evil actions or unkind statements. Pure religion encompasses the ability to cherish to build up and to turn the other cheek in place of destroying and tearing down. Blessed are they who strive to serve him without wasting time faulting him or those who serve him. The discerning realize that it is not realistic to expect perfection in others when none of us is perfect. As we reflect upon actions that do not fit the definition of pure religion, Perhaps we should contemplate the nature of this term. Pure religion and undefiled for God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep unspotted from the world. The words are simple, but a basic formula is revealed, namely, help those who are in need. Build your life around the gospel of Jesus Christ and avoid yielding to worldly temptations. As with most simple formulas, all of us must analyze our own lives and use wisdom and free agency as we apply the basic principles. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, this is my gospel, and ye know the things that ye must do in my church. For the works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. 
For that which we have, what you have seen me do, even that shall you do. The doing is always more difficult than the knowing. To keep ourselves unspotted from the world requires taking charge of and ruling our lives from within, accepting responsibility for our own actions, and choosing the role of peacemaker rather than retaliator when those around us are critical or spread false propaganda. It includes being aware that God's work on earth is done by human beings, all of whom have some weaknesses. It encompasses the ability to look for the good accomplished rather than being disillusioned when human failings surface. It includes resisting the urge to proclaim such weaknesses so adamantly that the basic good is overshadowed and testimonies waver. Pure religion is maintaining a balance between sophisticated intellectual information and the basic bread and brother principles of the gospel. Latter-day Saints are encouraged to pursue learning in all areas. However, superior knowledge and academic achievements need to be enhanced by wisdom, good judgment, and spiritual guidance in order to use all that is learned for the benefit of the individual and his fellow men. Some think they can learn of God only by appreciating His handiwork. Mountains, streams, flowers, birds, and animals are to be enjoyed and admired, but this is not enough. In the formal church setting, gospel truths are shared, new concepts are internalized, and new experiences are offered, all of which can result in enriched feelings about oneself and in learning better methods of helping others. One who practices pure religion soon discovers it is more rewarding to lift a man up than to hold him down. Happiness is bound up with helpfulness. Those who fail to protect someone's good name, who take advantage of the innocent or uninformed, or who build a fortune by pretending godliness to manipulate others, are missing the joy of practicing pure religion. Many have found joy by extending mercy and tender care to those around about them. What a strength it is to witness friends visiting nursing homes to comfort patients who don't even have the capacity to express appreciation. There are some who would question God's motives when he allows many to linger in pain and hopeless physical and mental deterioration. While this process is taking place, Others teach us by their compassionate service and patience. One who has served in many leadership positions in the Church, even in missions and temples, now without specific assignments, meets each month with those confined in a nursing home and often says, What a satisfaction I get each month as I visit these precious souls. Pure religion is showing concern and affection for those who, because they have lost their companions, are experiencing feelings of loneliness and neglect. Recently, I visited with a bishop who has in his ward more than 60 widows. He beamed, I love them all. At least once a week, he and his counselors visit them in addition to the calls made by their home teachers. They are the joys of our lives, he repeated. 
he might have said, don't you think that is more than our share? Another worthy practice in pure religion is a daily telephone call to each household and housebound person in a neighborhood. A loving older widowed lady said, if I telephone each day, it gives them a lift. And if they don't answer the phone, it lets me know they probably need a personal visit from me. One of these friends couldn't afford a telephone, so this same sister had a phone installed and took care of the monthly bill. Pure religion is practiced when we lift the unfortunate and unusual children. Some of God's choicest earthly spirits are those without meaningful parental care. Many are given family relationships by foster parents on a part or full-time basis. Pure religion is having the courage to do what is right and let the consequence follow. It is doing the right thing for the right reasons. To be righteous or serving or loving or obedient to God's laws just to earn praise or recognition is not pure religion. It is being able to withstand ridicule and even temporary unpopularity with some peer groups when you know who you are and for what goals you are reaching. So many of our young people and older ones also have developed such an inner strength. They have a great influence for good on others with whom they associate. Loving those around us includes being sensitive to feelings of others. As is often done, a conducting officer announced that when the deacons were through passing the sacrament, they were invited to go and sit with their families. One father noticed a boy walk out and sit in the foyer. The next week, he invited that deacon to sit with his family rather than to go through the embarrassment and loneliness caused by not having his own family in attendance. This parent responded to a need of the boy rather than to criticize the leaders for the policy. The action of this father can be enlarged on and put into practice by every member. The safety and protection of each person, especially children, should be a concern for all of us. We can be instrumental in assisting in the protection of each other and being aware of the potential dangers and being willing to do our part to thwart those who would injure, steal, or abuse any person, young or old. Examples of pure religion can be found on every hand. At a funeral about a month ago, I learned of a valiant young lady on a mission in a distant land who, after much prayer and many tears, wrote to her mom just before the terminal illness took its toll and told her that even though she'd like to be at her bedside, she would follow her mother's teachings and stay in the mission field to finish her assignment and search out those who wanted to hear the gospel. From the simple scripture that defines pure religion comes great guidelines. To be unspotted from the world, one must avoid all of Satan's evil plans for the inhabitants of the world. Retaliation, fault-finding, deceit, pettiness, hypocrisy, judging, destroying one another do not belong in the definition of pure religion. Empathy is sincere love for self and our fellow men. 
Henry David Thoreau said, Could a greater miracle take place than for us to look through each other's eyes for an instant? If this were possible, I am sure we could visit and help the widowed and fatherless and all who need our help with the pure love of Christ and thus be responsive to the needs of those around us. May God help us to learn and live the principles of pure religion. This business of lifting each other is a full-time occupation. Pure religion can never be taught nor lived by those who are petty, prejudiced, contentious, or unresponsible to the needs of their fellow men. Pure religion is following the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does live. He is our Redeemer. He is the head of this Church. To this I bear my witness in the holy name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear brothers and sisters, what a privilege it is to stand before you and bear you my testimony that Jesus is the Christ. There's an Oriental legend that tells the story of a jeweler who had a pearl that he wanted to sell. In order to place this precious pearl in the proper setting, he conceived the idea of building a box of the finest woods. And he sought these woods and had them brought to him, and they were polished to a high brilliance. He then reinforced the corners of this box by elegant brass hinges. And he placed in the box a red velvet interior covering. And as a final step, then, he scented that red velvet with perfume, then placed in that setting this pearl. The pearl was then put in the store window of the jeweler. And after a short period of time, a rich man came by, attracted by what he saw. And he sat down with the jeweler and began to negotiate. The jeweler found that the man was negotiating for the box and not the pearl. The man was so overcome, you see, by the beauty of the exterior, he didn't see the pearl of great price. We recently in our home had some members of another religious organization from another part of the country, and they stayed with us for about a week. This man was a very well-educated man. He initially was preparing for the ministry and then determined, no, he would not continue in that vein. He would become a psychologist, and he received his doctorate in the field of psychology. 
Upon graduating, then, he, among other things, formed a clinic. And in that clinic today, there are several psychiatrists, a number of psychologists, and social workers. And they perform these kinds of services for people that are in need of them. This man also is a, an advisor to a state board of education and to a state university. He is involved in the accreditation tests of universities. He's a very well-educated person, and he was coming to our home. What could we show him? How could we tell him about the things that we believe? Well, first, we brought him here to this magnificent building. It happened to be a Sunday morning, and he was impressed with the artistic ability of this great choir. He went into the visitor centers here on the grounds and was exposed to what they contain. I sought an interview for him with the Commissioner of Education. I wanted to impress him with the fact that we had people who had some background in the field of education as well. We took him to the Brigham Young University and there had him interview with persons there who were in his field, that he would be impressed with that great university, and he was impressed. I then took him behind the scenes and into the curriculum planning as described by Elder Packer today. As he saw that curriculum plan, and because of his background in education, he had been involved in planning curriculum, you see, for all different levels. But as he saw this plan, he was amazed. He said, I've never seen anything like it. You should have a Nobel Prize for curriculum planning. He saw many things. Then, the last evening at our home, I said, what questions do you have? He said, how do you console the bereaved? We opened up the Old Testament, and then we looked in the New Testament, and then we looked in another testament, the Book of Mormon. We studied in Alma and other parts of this testament that Jesus is the Christ that we call the Book of Mormon. We moved then to the Doctrine and Covenants, to these scriptures in our day, the 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the 138th section, and other parts of the Doctrine and Covenants. We looked in the Pearl of Great Price, and then we talked about the cross-referencing of these scriptures. They're not isolated one from another. They are one integral whole that have come from one source, the Lord God and his Son, Jesus Christ, who through prophets over the ages have inspired those thoughts and had them recorded that would lift us 
to an understanding of the pearl of great price. We have many wonderful things in this church, all of which contribute to an uplifting, wonderful level of life. And yet, as we look through all these trappings and down to the very center core, we find there that the message is that, yes, the Lord Jesus Christ came in the meridian of time. There he called others apostles and seventy and others to assist him in the task. He was placed on the cross and then in the tomb. And on the third day he rose, and he lives today. And because he lives today, we will live tomorrow. That, my friend, is how we console the bereaved. And I bear you my witness, brothers and sisters, that I know that Jesus is the Christ, that this is the church of Jesus Christ, and there are many testaments of him, the Old Testament, the New Testament, another testament commonly known as the Book of Mormon. And may we drink deeply from these testaments so that that testimony will bear up in our hearts and we can share it with others and that the kingdom of God will be here upon the earth that the kingdom of heaven may come. I pray humbly in the holy name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.